Okay, everybody, my name's Karen. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks, our February event. And I'm going to kick us off with a couple of thank yous. A big thanks to the folks at Windy Saddle. Uh, great meal, great service. Thank you. And by now, everybody's figured out the beer is complimentary, and you'll hear about that in a minute. But um, the service, they're still working hard for us, so if you can stick a dollar or two in the tip jar, I know they'd love it. Um, also, I want to thank goldentoday.com, Barb, for doing all the publicity for us. Thank you, Barb. And then we, uh, we can thank Greg Reed, although he's not here in person, but he donates the sound equipment every month, and so that's great. And then I want to acknowledge Andy Pearson and her family that were here tonight at the very special table. Uh, you may recall once a year we do an auction, and that's our big fundraiser for the year. So we really appreciate your support and others who've bought their very special tables. And now my job is done. I'm going to turn it over to the beer ambassador, Frank Blaha, if he can extricate himself. <laughs> from this one square foot he's occupying. All right, thank you. Since we're getting a late start, I'll keep it brief. Uh, the beer is complimentary from Miller Coors, but more specifically from Kim and Fred Linton. Fred would now be, uh, I guess Fred's term now would be, uh, he's emeritus from Miller Coors. He retired last fall, and um, he brought us four beers, Blue Moon, Belgian White, Killian's Red, which I couldn't remember earlier today, <laughs> Line and Kugel's Creamy Dark, which is a very nice beer, kind of a little nutty and cocoa-y. It's the only one I hadn't had before. And then uh, Colorado Native Golden Lager. And what's interesting is these are all Miller Coors products, but all different labels and all very nice beers. So I'll leave it at that. And I will, I'm now introducing, where's Whitney? Whitney, also of Golden Beer Talks, another one of the organizing committee of people with too much time and not enough sense. <laughs> or just too much beer. <laughs> this is going to have to move for you anyway, right? Welcome. Thank you very much for your patience and for always supporting us. We really appreciate it. I can see that you have read a little bit about our speaker tonight because we packed this room, and I think for good reason. It's a really, really exceptional opportunity to get the speaker that we have tonight, and also, um, I think, very timely. Um, here is the book that is called Living in Limbo, Creating Structure and Peace When Someone You Love is Ill. This is going to be for sale during the break, so that's in the back there. So don't leave without your copy. I bet you could get it signed. And we're going to bring up Claire Zilber. She is a remarkable doctor, and she's a remarkable expert, but she is a, an extremely remarkable human being. And in many capacities, livens the world and provides guidance in ways that um, will not even be touched here. But you'll have a sense of that from hearing her speak. She's one of my best friends, Claire Zilber. Thank you, Whitney. That is the very best introduction I have ever received. <laughs> and thank you for being so patient with our AV issues. And for those of you who are standing, you're getting some exercise in, and that's good. Um, so, oh, lip, uh, is that better? Is that better? Okay, sorry. Um, 
So um, when we're coping with um, mild stress, which I've been experiencing about this AV issue, or <laughs> but more importantly, extreme stress, we might feel like we're drowning. Um, and the point of my talk is to say that there actually are all kinds of flotation devices around us. We just need to figure out how to reach them. But they're there. Um, are you advancing slides, John? Next slide, please. Okay, well, while we're figuring out how to advance the slide, <laughs> I'm going to be talking a little bit about the physiology of stress and also about a concept that I really like called allostasis and its sidekick allostatic load. Then I'll share some of the research about the effect of stress on caregivers and the effect of grief on the immune system. And I'll close with what we know about how to um, modify the effects of stress and grief to maintain our health. Frank, how do we advance the slides? Oh. Okay, well, while they're figuring that out, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, how I became interested in stress and loss and grief. So AIDS hit the scene in the U.S. in 1981, and in 1984, researchers discovered that the HIV virus was the agent that causes AIDS. And that year, 1984, was the year I started medical school. So at that time, patients in hospitals who had AIDS were horribly ostracized. The food service people wouldn't bring their food into the room. They would leave it on a tray, and they would have paper trays and plastic forks, unlike everybody else in the hospital. Workers were afraid to go in, didn't want to take their vital signs. It was really kind of hysterical even though at that time we knew that HIV is bloodborne and that you couldn't get it from touching somebody or talking to somebody or serving them food. Oh, good. <laughs> so I'm now on to the next slide. Thank you. Um, so in 1986, when the very first month that I was on my clinical rotations, I was done with the classrooms, thank God, um, and I was on a surgery rotation, and I met my first AIDS patient. And it profoundly affected me and actually changed the direction of my career. So uh, I became a psychiatrist. And when I graduated from residency in 1992, I started an HIV mental health program inside the infectious disease clinic at University Hospital and also worked in the pre-existing mental health program in the ID clinic at Denver Health. So that was a difficult time. There weren't yet very effective medications for, for AIDS. Um, those didn't come out until late in 1996, and they just keep improving. And so most of our patients were dying. And most of our patients were also losing their friends, their whole support system. And so there were these layers upon layers upon layers of loss. And that creates something called bereavement overload when you don't have the opportunity to fully grieve one loss before the next one comes and then the next one. And um, it can lead to depression, of course. And in healthcare providers, it can lead to burnout. 
And so one of the issues that we were trying to contend with in the clinics was how to keep ourselves healthy and open to our patients who are still alive and not close ourselves off because we were grieving so much. And of course, I didn't know it at the time, but it was out of that experience that I developed a lot of the ideas that then ended up being published in Living in Limbo. Um, next slide, please. So this is the only medical school slide, I promise. <laughs> and there won't be a quiz at the end. Stress is defined in a medical sense as the non-specific non response of the body to any demand imposed upon it. So when the stress signal is registered by the brain, there is a cascade of events that happen. A signal is sent to the adrenal glands, which sit right above your kidneys, and um, they release the stress hormone cortisol, which is our main stress hormone. And also a signal is sent from the brain to the autonomic nervous system, which um, causes an inflammatory response. So all these um, immune cells and lymph nodes get activated, and you have a burst of all different kinds of inflammation. Um, so in combination, all of these different molecules um, affect almost every cell and organ in our bodies when we're stressed. So the acute stress response is really beneficial. If you're being chased by a bear, you want that cortisol and you want your autonomic nervous system to be activated so your blood pumps faster and there's more glucose available for your muscles and you can think more clearly and run as fast as you can. And also, you want those inflammatory cells activated because if you don't run fast enough and the bear bites you, if you have a really strong immune response, you might heal from that bite. So the acute stress response is really beneficial. However, if it stays around and becomes a chronic stress response, that causes a lot of wear and tear on our bodies, our organs, our brains, and it can lead to all kinds of bad things, including cancer, infections, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, all that. So we don't want to hang around in chronic stress. Also, psychological stress, separate from what might be going on with all these chemicals, psychological stress is associated with delayed wound healing and um, increase in the severity and duration of infectious disease. So you might know if you got a cold and it was a really hard time in your life, that cold might last longer. Um, it can promote reactivation of latent viruses. So the most common example is that the chicken pox virus, which lays dormant in our nerves, um, can be reactivated when you're stressed um, or immunocompromised and you develop shingles. Um, oh, and by the way, there's a new shingles vaccine that's amazing that you should get. There are waiting lists at the pharmacy for it right now. Um, next slide, please. So allostasis means achieving stability through change. It's the way our bodies manage all the experiences of living. And um, the analogy that makes the most sense to me is to think about your body as being a giant global economy. And if you change one thing, like say, put a tariff on steel, or <laughs> just randomly, <laughs> or um, 
or change the price of oil, or um, do a blockade of some sort, then um, you're going to end up having all these ripple effects throughout the economy, right? It's the same thing with our bodies. If we change one thing, we add more stress, or we change our diet, or we, um, oh, I don't know, uh, enter psychotherapy, then it's going to um, have effects on all other aspects of our being. Next slide, please. So let's talk a little bit about the effects of stress on caregivers. Now, because this isn't a scientific lecture, I don't have all the references, but everything that I'm saying here is based on real science that's published in peer-reviewed journals. It's not my opinion. Um, so we know that marital stress suppresses the immune response, and we also know that this is more pronounced in marriages that are younger, not the age of the person married, but a shorter duration marriage than in longer-term marriages. So there's something about having a newer, more recent marriage that makes the person, the, any, either of those two people, particularly vulnerable in an immune way to stress. Being a caregiver of a person with cancer or Alzheimer's um, causes increased inflammation. Um, and then that kind of chronic stress, like being a caregiver for an ill patient, also um, increases the risk of infection, decreases the take rate of vaccination, so your flu vaccine might not work as well if you're chronically stressed. Um, it slows wound healing, it speeds cancer growth, um, and it speeds chromosomal aging, which we can talk about in the Q&A if you want, because I don't have time now, but it's a cool idea. It's a cool concept. Um, also, we know that caregivers' social support networks shrink while their loved one is ill, because some friends just don't know how to stay present when there's that kind of crisis, and that those social support networks don't necessarily recoup after the loss. And so um, bereaved caregivers report the same amount of loneliness and have the same, um, same level of inflammatory weakness or um, immune weakness as uh, recently bereaved people. So you don't just bounce back. Next slide, please. So there's also an effect on um, immunity of grief. So we know the symptoms of acute grief. We probably all have experienced them at some point. Sadness, anxiety, depression, anger. Um, and all of these emotions can be associated with increased heart rate and blood pressure, increased cortisol, remember that stress hormone, sleep disturbance, and also changes in immune function. But then separately, separate from whether you're grieving or not, disturbed sleep for any of us, but which is also extra common in grief, increases some inflammatory molecules, and um, it's in particular one called interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 is associated with major depression. So... Whether or not you're grieving, if you're not sleeping well, you're at greater risk of depression. And then if you're grieving and you're not sleeping well, you're at double risk of depression. Um, and again, there are different, different mediators of the allostatic response. It's this economy, right? You can pull on sleep or you can pull on uh, sadness or anger and that stress or loneliness, and it all will affect your body and your brain. Next slide. 
So let's review what we already have gone through. So grief often includes feelings of depression and anxiety, which can cause cognitive arousal, so really active brain, so you can't sleep well, or you're just really stressed, just hit advance. Oops, you did it too many times. One more, yellow arrow. Okay. And we know that those things can cause neuroendocrine activation, right? The cortisol and the autonomic um, nervous system can get activated from that stress. And that, yes, can lead to an immune and inflammatory response. So my question when I was in the ID clinic and throughout my career is how might we affect each of these steps? So next thing. Yes, thank you. So psychotherapy and social support can help reduce depression and anxiety. Next one. Meditation, exercise, and something called CBT for insomnia, which is a kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, can reduce cognitive arousal and improve your sleep. Next one. And diet and stress reduction techniques can reduce neuroendocrine activation. Next slide, please. Very well done, John. So, um, grief-focused psychotherapy helps to process the trauma. It resolves anger and guilt, um, depression, and also helps people deal with existential questions like, why, didn't, why w wasn't it me who went instead of my loved one? Or what's the purpose in my life now that I'm no longer taking care of my loved one? Or other types of existential dilemmas that people face after a loss. Group support also helps reduce isolation. Remember, people who are caregivers and bereaved are often have a shrunken social support network, and it can give them new ways of coping and adapting. So it makes sense, and you probably already would believe me, that group support is emotionally helpful. But what's really interesting is group support also has an effect on physiology. So um, back to HIV research. Um, back in 2001, there was a study published that looked, it was a randomized controlled trial, which means that there was a group of patients who received the study intervention, which was a support group, a weekly support group. And then there was another group of patients with AIDS um, who were similar in terms of their immune health and they were on similar antiviral medications and this was when we had better medications and not everybody was dying. Um, and they were on a wait list for the support group. So they still thought they would have a support group but they weren't actively receiving it. So um, what they found was, this was a six month study, so they took um, all kinds of t blood tests of uh, both sets of patients before the study and at the end of the study. And they found that the group that was receiving the weekly support group had um, higher CD4 counts. CD4 cells are the immune cells that HIV um, destroys. And so you want a high CD4 count. And so the patients who were in the support group had higher CD4 counts than the patients who were not in the support group whose illness was progressing. So the, and that was the only thing that was different between those groups. So it demonstrates that bereavement support groups um, are not only a support psychologically, but also immunologically, which is, kind of blows my mind. Um, next slide. 
So chronic sleeplessness increases the risk of depression, and disrupted sleep increases inflammation. And so restoring sleep is one way to improve your allostasis and reduce your allostatic load. So um, because, especially because we started late, if you want, I can talk about CBT for insomnia at the, at the uh, Q&A section, but it's actually a more effective treatment than sleeping pills. That's not my opinion. That's scientifically shown. Um, and, and then there's no addiction to it, too. So that's another benefit. Next slide. Next slide. Okay. So you probably all know that a westernized diet, like red and processed, red meats, processed meats, processed food, sugars, refined grains, are associated with diabetes and heart disease and colon cancer and all kinds of bad things. And that's because these foods increase inflammatory molecules. And it's that inflammation that's causing the illness. And it's not just that um, it's a buildup over time. If you go to your favorite fast food joint, if you have one, and you order a hamburger or french fries, and um, you eat it, and then 30 minutes later, somebody draws your blood, your inflammation markers will be elevated just in that short time. The saturated fats in that food get, are absorbed by your intestines and go to your liver, and something happens in your liver cells in response to those, um, uh, the saturated fat and other toxins in that food. Um, that causes an inflammatory response. But there are things that you can do to counteract that, like you can eat more fruits and vegetables, which are full of antioxidants and other beneficial chemicals, uh, molecules. Or you can eat fatty fish, like salmon and sardines, which have omega-3 fatty acids, which are also antioxidants and helpful for your body um, and helpful for your brain. Um, you can eat... Um, yogurt and other foods that have live cultures in them because that will make your gut healthier. And we are just beginning to scratch the surface of how the microbiome, which is like this whole other organism inside us, keeps us healthy. Next slide. So moderate alcohol intake is associated with lower levels of um, these systemic inflammatory molecules. Um, then e so it, in people who are moderate drinkers, there are lower inflammation than in non-drinkers or in heavy drinkers. But the key here is the definition of moderate drinker. So the National Institute of Health says that for women, moderate drinking is one serving a day and no more than seven in a week. And that for men, it's two servings a day and no more than 14 in a week. However, there was a recent study published, a meta-analysis, which means they pull together a whole bunch of studies and, and then evaluate all that data on much larger numbers of patients. So it's a stronger, a stronger kind of science. So a meta-analysis that looked at alcohol and cancer, and it suggested that actually men also should only have one serving a day. I'm just telling you the science. So if you do get a second beer at intermission, it's probably okay as long as you skip a drink tomorrow or 
drink, ex eat extra fruits and vegetables tomorrow, or exercise, or something like that to make up for it. Um, which is not to say that you can be a heavy drinker and get away with it by eating more fruits and vegetables. I don't mean to imply that. Okay, <laughs> next slide. So exercise is an allostatic powerhouse. It both prevents and treats depression and anxiety. And I spent a good half an hour trying to find a slide of somebody exercising who was older than 23. <laughs> it's all like babes in sports bras and big hunks with like rippling muscles, but you know, this is more appropriate for this audience. <laughs> yeah, normal people doing normal exercise. Um, so um, exercise also improves sleep as long as you don't do it within two hours of bedtime. Um, it enhances immune function. Um, and people who are physically active have um, lower levels of these inflammatory markers like interleukin-6 than their sedentary counterparts, even when you control for everything else being the same, body weight and age and all that. Next slide, John. So we live in Colorado, and so we all know that time in nature is a really special and healing thing, independent of exercise, right? So if you go on a, on a bike ride or a hike in nature, you're getting two allostatic load reducers. But if you can't exercise one day because you have an injury or you just don't feel like it, you can just be in nature, and that by itself has a beneficial effect on our bodies. Shinrin-yoku is the Japanese term for nature bathing, and it's been shown in scientific studies to reduce heart rate, um, to reduce blood pressure, and to reduce urinary adrenaline. Adrenaline is that fight-or-flight hormone. Um, and um, it can decrease scores for depression, fatigue, anxiety, and confusion. And initially, I was wondering, well, I don't know how it would decrease confusion, except then it makes so much sense to me. Now, this is opinion, not science. But when I have a dilemma that I'm trying to resolve, one of the best ways for me to do it is to go take a walk in nature. There's something about being in nature that I think clears the mind in some way. But I don't know what the science is about that. Um, so next slide. This is the slide that I don't think is going to work because of our AV issues. So I'll just describe to you what it is. Um, this is actually an interactive web page. Um, and I could pull on the inflammatory response. And you see how it's tied to all these. Can you still hear me when I'm pointing? It's tied to all these other things, good things and bad things, right? Your underlying health problems might increase your inflammatory response at baseline. And then you add some social strain like um, you're not getting along with your spouse or, um, or your sibling or you just lost your job because you're spending so much time taking care of your loved one that you got fired um, or um, you're injured or you're not sleeping well. Those all will make that inflammatory response more bright red on my page. Um, and then these things like uh, meditation, or getting more social support, or exercising, or improving your diet can weaken the inflammatory response. And so just think about this whole economy. Any one of these things that you tug on will make the others move. And I didn't put all the different things up here because it was going to be too crowded and ugly. 
Or another way of thinking about it is um, if you think about old-fashioned, um, an old-fashioned scale, you know, with two dishes, and you put the weights in one dish and, say, the gold or whatever it is that you're trying to measure in the other dish. So if you think about the weight as being your stressors, a lot of times people think, oh my gosh, I am so stressed, I'm working so hard, and I have to take care of my mom, and blah, blah, blah. There is no way I can exercise or have coffee with my girlfriend or whatever, right? And then that just makes your scales even more unbalanced. So when you have more weight in your stress side, you actually have to put more gold in the other pan, see your girlfriends extra, really protect your sleep, eat even better, don't get fast food, right? Um, so that you can stay more balanced. So that would be the other way of thinking about it. And I think we can have an intermission now. If you would like to take a look at Claire's book, like I said, it'll be available in the back, and there is some more beer if you would prefer to avail yourself of that stress-reducing mechanism. <laughs> and we will come back for Q&A, and we will leave some time for it, because I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Thank you for your patience. Let's see here. Hello. 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 We are, we're going to bring Claire. We're going to bring Claire back up for some Q and A. Feel free to select the questioner of your choice. If you don't mind repeating the question, as well, that'd be awesome. All right, here we go. Here comes Claire. Thank you. So we are continuing our um, AV problems or computer problems. So the square's not working, so you're not able to buy my book. But it's okay. You can buy it online on Amazon, or you can buy it at Tattered Cover, which you can also do online on their website. So you're supporting a local business without having to go to a brick-and-mortar store. Or you can go into any of the Tattered Cover stores except the airport ones. And they also carry it at the Bookies in Denver. So thank you for supporting Laura and me. Um, so I am happy to take any questions with a caveat. Um, for ethical reasons, I don't want to take any questions about the mental health of any public figures. And <laughs> that's actually not a joke, <laughs> because people do it all the time. And also, also, uh, f also for ethical reasons, I don't want to provide any medical advice. So if you ask me about, you know, your cousin Susan's antidepressant dose, I'm not going to answer that kind of question because I can't pr provide medical care from this podium. Yes. So I was so disappointed to hear that I had to go to two, one serving instead of two. In terms of alcohol, how much is a serving? Oh, that's an excellent question. So what is the size of a serving of alcohol? So for uh, the average beer, I mean, now beers have all these different varied uh, alcohol contents. But for the average beer, it's um, 12 ounces. For a glass of wine, it's four ounces, which is a lot smaller than most restaurants pour and a lot smaller than most people pour in their home. So really, your glass of wine is probably two glasses. Um, and for hard liquor, it's one ounce. 
that's a serving. So if you're going to a bar and you're ordering, I don't know, I don't drink cocktails, but you're ordering something that has three different things in it, it's actually three servings. Yeah. Yes, you. So that's such an interesting question because there are so many parts about this question about if you're working a night shift, are you really sleeping enough? Do you need to exercise more to make up for the fact that you might be drinking extra? There's so many parts of that question. Um, so I guess the parts that are easiest to address are if you're sleeping enough. So most people need seven to eight hours of sleep and you just don't do well if you're sleeping six hours or less, which the average American adult is sleeping not enough. Uh, which has all kinds of effects on your health. Um, so if you're getting seven to eight hours of sleep, you're getting enough sleep. Um, also, there's this whole other issue about night shift workers. So there are additional stressors, physiological stresses for night shift workers that are associated with some cancers. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, and depression. So, um, you know, doing more exercise, healthier diet, all that to try to mitigate that. It doesn't mean that you're sentenced to it, but you just are at a higher risk. Yeah. But it's better, it would be better to stick with one shift than to be moving back and forth. Because if you start changing your circadian rhythm and being always in jet lag, that's even worse than North working night shift. So that's an interesting anthropological question of why, why is there this chronic stress response that's not beneficial for us? And weren't our early ancestors also experiencing chronic stress because of food shortage or you know, difficulties with predators? Or, uh, and it's a great question, and I, can't, I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, certainly, I think there were times earlier in, um, in our known history when there wasn't as much stress as there is in modern living. There, there's no question in my mind that the average person living in 1850 did not have as much stress as we have now because, because the pace of life was slower. And so there was time to decompress or to sleep, right? There weren't electric lights and all the devices we have. And so at night when it was dark, especially in the winter, they slept. 
Okay. Uh, wait. Yes. Oh, is it working now? Thank you. <laughs> okay, so you can buy a book. Um, Karen. Mm -hmm. Yes, CBT for insomnia stands for Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Insomnia. So Cognitive Behavior Therapy is a, a large body of therapeutic work originally developed by Aaron Beck at the University of Pennsylvania for the treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. But um, it's now been modified, so there's a particular protocol to use for sleep. And it has to do with changing your sleep, beha your behaviors around bedtime and around your bedroom and the idea of sleep, and also changing your thoughts about sleep. So how many of you have had the thought while you're lying sleepless in bed, oh my God, if I don't fall asleep, I'm going to be ruined tomorrow, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And yet, and yet somehow you have had previous sleepless nights and not been ruined, you didn't actually die, because here you are. And it, those thoughts further activate your brain and keep you up. So if you can train yourself to let those thoughts go, oh, well, if I don't sleep tonight, I'll be tired tomorrow, but then I'll sleep even better tomorrow night because I'll be so tired, right? And so by changing your behaviors and your thoughts around sleep, you actually can really um, improve your sleep. Joan. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so this talk is not in the book. This is a kind of a different thing than the book, but they are related. Um, so Living in Limbo is a book written by um, my co-author, Laura Michaels, who couldn't be here tonight, um, and me. It's Laura's first-person story about um, the whole process of finding out that her husband had cancer and figuring out how to treat it and wondering, well, when that treatment fails, what do we do next? While she was raising three children and working. Um, and there was this long and, and changing limbo experience. The first part of he's ill, but we don't know what it is, and the workup, and during that workup, there's the anxiety about what might it be, and then when you have the diagnosis, now how are we going to treat it, and, and then is the treatment going to work, and, and so there's this long but changing limbo that you need to adapt to to still do your life, right? Laura still had to raise her kids and work and feed the family and all that. Um, and so um, after Bill passed away, she decided she wanted to write about her adaptation because she couldn't find a book to help her. She looked and looked and looked for a book to dis that would be for her, not for the cancer patient, but for the caregiver. And she really couldn't find one that spoke to her. And so she asked me to be her co-author. And so the whole book is written as a kind of a call and response dialogue. She tells part of her story, and then I say something about the science of what she's describing or the philosophy that's linked to what she's describing, and then she tells more of her story, and it goes back and forth like that in the book. And it doesn't have to be read sequentially because people who are caregivers are often really stressed. They don't have that much time, but while you're sitting waiting for, in the doctor's office, to be, you know, to get taken back to the room, you might have 10 minutes to read a little section on uh, limit setting when people are asking too much of you or um, 
how to uh, modify your diet when your diet is going to be different than your loved one's diet because their medical condition makes them eat a special diet, or that kind of thing. Yes. Well, it depends on the wine and your palate, right? Um, there, <laughs> there, yes, there, there is some, there is some, there's some um, particular phytochemicals inside the skins of the grapes that um, are transferred into red wine that may not be available in white wine. But uh, and so, if you were going to think about the hierarchy of how beneficial alcohol is, I would say red wine, then white wine, then beer, and really, I don't know that hard liquor is really beneficial to your health. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I am. Oh, that's an excellent question. Thank you for asking that question. Um, so the question has to do with the eight hours of sleep. Does it make a difference if it's all one continuous eight-hour block or whether it's four two-hour blocks with interruptions? So in the normal, uh, it's called sleep architecture, um, and it's something that's discerned in a sleep lab when your brain is hooked up to an EEG machine while you're sleeping. Um, so there's changes in brain waves while you're sleeping, and there are two, usually people go through two cycles, two full cycles of a sleep phase. So um, there are four stages of sleep, and it takes about three and a half to four hours to get through all four stages. And you do want all four stages. Um, deep sleep, which is, happens um, towards the end of the cycle, is really the most restorative time. So if you're only sleeping two hours, you may not be getting enough deep sleep. You really would want to see what you could do to extend that to about three and a half hours. You know, if you have to get up twice in the night, maybe, you know, a three and a half hour block, and then maybe three and one or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. is a great question. So the question has to do with, in our normal day-to-day -day lives, when we're not stressed, we're really pretty good at following a healthy diet. But then when we get stressed, we start craving sweets and pasta and bread and all these things that aren't good for us. And why is that? So I can give you a hypothesis, a couple of hypotheses, but I don't know definitively that this is fact. Okay? So one hypothesis and sort of the easy the low-hanging fruit here is that when we're stressed, we're not necessarily then going to spend as much time planning our menus and going to the grocery store and preparing food. We're just going to grab what we can grab, and the stuff that you can grab usually isn't very high-quality food. But the other, more interesting part of the answer might be that um, 
the simple sugars that are in carbohydrates um, are quite addictive. They light up the same part of the brain as cocaine. So they can be quite addictive. And so if you think about yourself feeling stressed and you want something to make you feel better and you're not a cocaine addict, then, <laughs> then maybe you would go for cookies. And then that becomes rewarding. Ooh, I got that good hit. And then your insulin kicks in and gets rid of that extra sugar and you're in withdrawal and you feel sluggish and you're like, oh, I need another cookie. Yeah, and becomes addictive. Mm -hmm. so, so when you're stressed, that's why you have to put really extra mindfulness into how am I going to eat and how am I going to purvey that food for myself? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's a really great question. Right. So, the que of course, from a graduate from my alma mater, Haverford College, who I just met tonight. Um, so, um, the question is, why is it that men maybe can drink two drinks a day and women can only drink one? Does it have to do with body mass or does it have to do with some other characteristic of the two different sexes? And the answer is it's not body mass. Um, it probably has to do with enzymes in your liver, and the enzyme activity for men is different than the enzyme activity for women. So women don't break down alcohol as efficiently as men, um, and so some um, toxic uh, intermediary compounds stick around longer and do more damage. Um, and then also, there are some ethnic groups that um, have slower metabolism. So, um, especially I think Japanese people may be missing one of the enzymes or have a lower activity of one of the enzymes. And so um, some Japanese people can't drink without getting an antabuse abuse response. Like getting better with time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not necessarily a good sign. <laughs> Oh, okay, so the question, this is a tough question, is there, of all these different mechanisms of reducing stress and reducing inflammation, is there one mechanism that has been shown to be superior to others? So we're not at that point in the research. There aren't any studies that are comparing exercise to meditation to psychotherapy to diet. I mean, that would be, it would be so hard to control all factors and, you know, that just would be hard to study scientifically. Um, so uh, I guess the easy answer is whichever ones are easiest for you to do, those are your things. So for me, it's exercise and diet because those are things I f like that are easy for me to access. Um, but for another person, it might be meditation.
oh my gosh, Danica. <laughs> That's a stumper. Uh, so the question is, there's the, what is the data about vitamin D and an ultraviolet light? Oh, that's not ultra. Oh, okay, that's not ultraviolet light. Okay, so uh, so vitamin D and phototherapy, like like light boxes for seasonal mood disorder, on stress. Interesting. Hmm. Okay, so I don't know the answer to that question. So light boxes are great for if you have the you know the winter blues. Some people get depression in the winter, and light boxes using a, for about twenty to thirty minutes first thing in the morning really help treat that kind of depression. Also, light boxes are a, a safe antidepressant for pregnant women, regardless of whether it's winter or summer. Um, it can treat depression in pregnant women who don't want to take medications. Um, also, there's some research that came out a year ago that suggests that in people with bipolar, bipolar disorder who can't take regular antidepressants because it might destabilize their illness, a uh, short burst of light box use in the middle of the day treats their depression without precipitating mania. And for um, shift, work, uh, shift workers, so not just late night, but if you were changing shifts, you can use light box to change your circadian rhythm around your shift time. So there are all kinds of beneficial uses, but I don't know about inflammation in the light box. Good question. Yes. Yeah. So you can use melatonin to help shift your circadian rhythms. They can be used both for um, to improve uh, your adaptation to jet lag if you're changing time zones, and um, or if you're changing shifts. There's a misconception that if you take a high dose of melatonin at bedtime, it'll make you sleepy like a sleeping pill. That's actually not how it works. Melatonin is part of our circadian rhythm. So when, you're, when you open up your eyes in the morning and the sun is out, there's a signal that's sent through your retina to the pineal gland, which is a little endocrine gland in your brain, that says, this is morning. And then that determines that about um, 14 to 16 hours later, your pineal gland will do a burst of melatonin, which sends a signal to your brain to start thinking about winding down alertness and allowing non-alertness to ramp up. It's so there's sort of two opposing forces. You have to wind down the alertness and also allow the tiredness to come. So if you're tired but you're on your screen with that light flickering, you're not allowing your alertness to ramp down. So if you're going to take melatonin to help with sleep, you're actually going to take it a couple of hours before bed, maybe around dinner time, to augment your body's natural production of melatonin. But if you take too high a dose, you'll just suppress your body's natural production of melatonin, which seems counterproductive to me. That's probably more of an answer than you wanted. <laughs> yes? Oh, what's a light box? Great question. Okay. So a light box is a very special device. It's not just like it's not like a photographer's light box, and it's not just a like a lamp in your house. It has a special um, intensity of uh, light bulb, a special intensity of light emitted by a special light bulb that is measured in units of lux. And I cannot tell you the physics of lux because I did not learn that about that in physics. We all learn about you know, I don't know watts. But 
So I don't really know what lux is, but lux is the intensity of um, first daylight. When, after the sun has risen, but that early morning sunshine, that's 10,000 lux, and that's the thing that sends that signal through your retina to your pineal gland. Oh, interleukin-6, yeah, the inflammatory? Oh, that's a good question. So if you, me if you measure your interleukin-6, will it tell you if you're balanced? Um, I wish. No. <laughs> interleukin-6 um, is not something that's usually ordered in blood, in like a standard blood test when you go to your doctor. It's something more used in research. Yeah. What does it do? <laughs> it's, um, it's called a cytokine, um, which means that it's a, a kind of a toxic chemical that our body produces for all kinds of reasons. So the good reasons to have cytokines is to help kill um, bacteria or um, other unwanted things uh, like cancer cells um, or viruses. Uh, and so that's why we have these cytokines to kill things we don't want, right? Um, so, the, I mean, like the reason you feel sick when you get a virus is actually your body's inflammatory response that's mediated by a lot of things, including cytokines. Um, so it's actually your body's immune response that makes you sick. Um, so it's something that you want, but you don't want it too high too long. Yes? It's her phone. You need my finger. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire. These are great questions. Thank you. That was great, Claire. And, and you really persevered through a lot of stress at the front. That was, it was a great talk. And for those of you who joined us for the first time, I hope you'll consider coming back to Beer Talks. And just to let everybody know, next month, on March 12th, we have a, a speaker, Lisa Gardner, another author, and she's a science educator associated with uh, UCAR Center for Science Education up in Boulder. She's an author of a book called Tales from an Uncertain World, and she explores human responses to earthquakes, fires, invasive species, other disasters, bringing large-scale disaster to a human scale and emphasizing the role of individuals. So I think that'll be a really interesting talk. Um, thanks, everyone. I think the square is working, so if you want to buy Claire's book, she'll meet you at the back. And uh, thank you. If you can help um, bust your tables, that would be terrific. Good night. <laughs>